Hello and welcome to this Royal Children's Hospital podcast series, Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying, produced by the Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and nationally funded by Quality of Care Collaborative Australia. My name is Lena Keneva and I'm a journalist and the facilitator of this five-part series. This series will focus on the experience of parents whose children have died or are likely to have a short life. The parents we're about to hear from have been supported by palliative care teams to face multiple challenges in caring for their own children. They bravely share their experiences to inform and prepare other families who may need to face similar challenges. In this episode, we look at communicating with siblings and ask, what about me? We're joined today by two mothers to hear their stories, Beck and Cherie. Welcome to the program. Beck's eight-year-old son, Gideon, was diagnosed with a GBM brain tumour. He underwent surgery, radiotherapy and targeted chemotherapy, but died just 12 months later. Beck and her partner, Lee, have three other children, including a newborn. Welcome to you. Thank you. Joining us with Beck is Cherie, whose daughter Ruby was diagnosed with Dawes syndrome just weeks before she passed away at just 10 months of age. Cherie and her husband Brad have two other children aged 11 and 12. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Beck, tell us a little bit about your family and the journey with Gideon. Gideon would have been 11 two weeks ago, so he was diagnosed with um, a brain tumour in May 2018, and he was eight years old at the time, and prior to that he was perfectly well and healthy, and um, he really became unwell for a very short period of time. We noticed on um, Friday afternoon at school that he wasn't quite right, and um, over the next sort of... 48 hours, he um, vomited um, a few times, didn't quite seem right. Um, I just couldn't put my finger on it. And um, he had a bit of um, a weakness on his face. And I thought, this doesn't quite make sense. And within 48 hours, we came to the children's hospital and he was examined in emergency and um, was found to have weakness on one side of his body and went on to have an MRI and was diagnosed with sort of a brain tumour almost that day. And so everything happened in a very short period of time. Um, and at the time, we had two children. Our daughter was not quite three and a half and our baby was nearly nine months. So um, Gideon had um, surgery sort of within a day or two and had another surgery um a week later, so he was in hospital for a two-week period where they removed as much of the tumour as possible. Um, and we understood at the outset that this was a really serious cancer and um, that the likelihood of him surviving from this was slim. Um, and the um, other thing that happened is because the... Um, tumour was on the right side of his brain, it affected the left side of his body. So he had um, a hemiplegia. So he had very limited use of his left hand and walked a bit with a limp. But um, we were sort of worried how Gideon would um, cope with it all because he was quite um, a gentle, sort of socially not confident child and really was dependent on his family and loved everything with family and school, but we were worried how we'd go with the whole hospital admission. But in the end, he sort of really did pretty well. Um, so he came home from hospital and the plan was for him to have five weeks of radiotherapy, which he did. Um, and for that radiotherapy, um, he um, was awake each day and we were, um, radiotherapy is only a, lasts for about five, 10 minutes, but um, 
because the tumour was in his brain, he had to have a mask fitted and placed and had to lie very still on the bed. And we were also worried how he would go with that. But with a lot of coaxing and preparation beforehand, he did really well. And I know this sounds bizarre, but actually radiotherapy was quite a positive experience. The staff there were really good. We made music playlists. We went in every day with family and aunties and uncles, and it was actually really pleasant. Um, And then he had some chemotherapy afterwards. So um, he was able to attend school for a few hours at a time. And um, really the 12 months that we had together was really lovely. It was probably the the most intense time we'd spent, Lee or I had spent with him since we'd had maternity leave, you know. Um, And it was lovely and the family were all together. And I think he had a pretty good quality of life sort of right up to the end. A terrifying family experience, but the outcome, as you say, you had a good experience. We'll come back to that. Um, Cherie, welcome to you. Can you tell us about your family and the journey with Ruby and her seizures? Yeah. Um, In 2013, I gave birth to Ruby and uh, Charlie was three and Harry was four at the time. And uh, I had a normal pregnancy Um, not too many complications. And then hours after Ruby was born, she had a seizure and they couldn't actually find the cause of it. And so after a week in um, NICU, she was sent home and we live in regional Victoria. So we took her um, back to home. And as time passed, I think having, uh, being a third child, you know what's what's kind of normal and um, Brad and I noticed things at home with Ruby that were a little bit different to when the boys were babies and at about six weeks of age um, she had a very long um, seizure and was taken to um, our local hospital and then airlifted to here and that was sort of the start of our journey uh, on the neurology ward there. And, um, yeah, we sort of spent, I think it was four to six weeks here initially um, to try and um, manage her seizures. And, um, yeah, it was that feeling of I actually wanted to live here. I didn't want to go home. Um, uh, but, yeah, we, we went home with a plan um, to manage her seizures at home. And for us, for our family, it was extremely difficult having Brad a couple of hours away and, and the boys were young and, um, you know, they were doing weekend visits and, yeah, it was quite tricky. Um, but we managed and initially um, Ruby was airlifted a lot um, because she was having seizures at home and then was airlifted to down to here. Um, and sort of all while this was going on, we were trying to get to the bottom of um, what was causing her seizures. So we were um, in a couple of research projects and, um, uh, you know, we were under the genetics team, the metabolic team, the neurology team. So it was, um, I think she was quite a complicated case. Um, and... Yeah, as she grew older, as the months went by, um, we spent uh, time at home and, you know, short visits in here. And then in the October, um, she had a seizure that um, we couldn't control. And um, we'd sort of, uh, as she got bigger, we were trying different medications and then... um, yeah, she was uh, admitted to ICU and, um, yeah, we were sort of at that stage where we were still searching for what was wrong and um, and, and leading up to that as well, she, she was born with a um, bilateral profound hearing loss so we knew there were other things going on with her. She wasn't meeting her um, developmental milestones and... Um, sort of before we increased the medication, she started to smile and things like that. But as the medications increased, she stopped doing that. Um, and, yeah, after she went into um, ICU, we, I guess we had those conversations of, you know, what do we do now? And it was a challenging time having 
other small children and trying to uh, get them to visit and trying to have a family life together when we live so far away. Uh, it's when we were introduced to um, very special kids through the palliative care team and we um, talked about end-of-life care and um, Brad and I uh, made the decision to um, uh, go to the hospice over in Malvern, very special kids there, um, and sort of uh, take Ruby off the ventilator over there and... Um, to our surprise, she <laughs> she um, she came off the ventilator and she uh, just kept breathing and, and wanting to live. And um, after a short stint uh, down uh, the peninsula for, for our first family holiday, we then decided to take her home to the farm because um, I felt like we sort of, the five of us were just hanging around, very special kids waiting for her to die. Um, and then we took her home and it was it was the start of December so the boys were really excited about Christmas and we thought that was really important for them as well and um, she continued on for another three weeks and she passed away two days after Christmas in 2013. So, And leading up to that, I think it was once we returned home after being at Very Special Kids that we got the diagnosis that she um, had Dawes syndrome. So a long and intense time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well done. Thank you for explaining that to us. Good paediatric palliative care should include care of the whole family and sibling support is acknowledged as an important aspect of care. However, sibling support can sometimes be overlooked. Parents are often fearful about how to approach conversations about death and dying with their children and how to prepare and support them during their life and at the time of the death of their sibling. This episode aims to explore support for siblings, how this was approached by parents, what worked, what was challenging and how to keep the memory of their child's brother or sister alive in the life of the family. We're talking to Beck and Cherie. Firstly, what was your experience, Beck, of the palliative care in that time frame? Um, oh, really positive, actually. Um, so uh, Gideon um, was diagnosed in May and um, because um, part of the targeted chemotherapy he required, um, he needed to be part of a clinical trial. And um, the medical staff explained to us that for any child who's part of a clinical trial at RCH, um, the, the policies they need to be introduced to the palliative care team at the outset the relationship you don't necessarily have to pursue the relationship then but they want you to meet them then and I know that probably for some families that's a really um in your face difficult thing to hear but um because I'm a medical doctor I understood that and I knew that palliative care is a broad term and they have other purposes besides um you know, besides what people might think is end a child of life. end of life. So um, I was quite happy for that. <laughs> and I suppose um, I also was friendly with one of the medical doctors. So we found the pal care team great. Um, and they would come and see us when we were waiting in the um, Children's Cancer Centre, either before or after an appointment, and just have a chat with us. We didn't explain to Gideon what sort of doctors they were. I think um, they were just sort of the fun doctors who would sit and chat um, so it was really good and they um, added another sort of perspective. I would speak to them on the phone or see them before or after the appointment. So we had a relationship that started at the beginning when Gideon was really good and it was nice that they um, had an opportunity to sort of meet him and understand his funny, quirky personality because, um, you know, obviously some people who met him towards the end, you know, he was quieter and, and more different. So... That's how we met the um, hospital pal care team and um, then our relationship became more involved as he needed sort of supportive care and other medical treatment. Um, but 
probably, I suppose, maybe nine months into Gideon's illness when we knew things had taken a turn for the worse, um, the palcare team suggested that we meet VSK and we were really eager to do that because I wanted to um, have, give the kids an opportunity to form a relationship with the counsellors moving forward. So that was really good and we still are connected with them a year and a half later. A good experience of yeah. palliative care. Yeah. And Cherie, did you, having a, a small newborn baby, how did the palliative care concept come to you? What did you think and how did it work for you? Mm, I think uh, initially I felt a little resistant to it. I think it's that thought of when you think of palliative care that it's the very end and um, I guess Brad and I were probably not quite ready for that and coming to terms with it. So I guess initially I was a bit reluctant, like when they would come into the room, I'd be like, oh, here they are again. <laughs> but um, honestly, we, uh, I, we are both so grateful that we were introduced to them, um, to the team. And I guess our, um, our experience was quite short um, with the palliative care team. Um, but yeah, they were, uh, they would visit and, you know, have short conversations with it when we were up to it. And I think they have this special knack of, um, finding the right words and the right times. And, uh, they also introduced us to very special kids when we started talking about end of life care, um, and I guess for us to, um, after taking Ruby back to regional Victoria, that opened up a whole new um, realm of palliative care uh, at home. Um, even though we were still uh, connected through RCH, we had to link in with the local palliative care team and that was quite challenging at the beginning. Ruby was the first child to be in palliative care in our area and um, children are very different to elderly. And um, But I think with the support from RCH and that transition, um, we found a good rhythm in the end. Um, and I think the support too from very special kids, it, we're years down the track now and um, our family still has a connection with very special kids and um, with their support services. And uh, we, as a family, we really get a lot out of being connected to VSK too. So so it's, it doesn't just end at the end. No. It, it, it goes on, yeah. which is good. Yeah. 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 How did you both approach talking to your children, very small children, um, your children younger than Gideon. How did you both approach that, Beck? How did you approach talking to your children? Um, the first thing I did is I um, got some books on death and dying. Red Kite, one of the other organisations, um, sort of advertised. So I sort of got a collection in the mail and I didn't open them for a while and then I sort of opened them and had a look and I just wanted to think about how I could do it in an age-appropriate way. So our daughter was, by the time um, she was sort of four and a bit when Gideon died and our other son was 21 months, so we were really thinking about our daughter. Um, we, gosh, it's really hard to um, think about what we did. I think we... You know, she understood a little bit about death because some of the great-grandparents had died and I think um, we'd mentioned something about when someone dies, they're in heaven and they can watch you and they can see you um, and they know what you're doing um, but they're not able to talk to you. Um, but that, So that was sort of the premise that existed and we didn't really say too much more about that Um and I, I, until and and she knew that Gideon was very sick and that he might his arms might not get better, um, but she didn't ask any specific questions, so we didn't give her any more detail than that. Um, and then when Gideon died, he died overnight, and the next morning 
she came down and had breakfast and we sort of said to her, you know, Gideon's been very sick. Well, Gideon died overnight. And I remember she gave us this incredulous look and she said, no, he didn't. For real? For real life? You know, it's a quote from Bluey. Um, and I think it must have just been bizarre to her because he was just lying on the couch, although he, you know, wasn't responding the night before. Um, but... I think she sort of had some sort of idea of of death and what happens that, and and also she was young that it, it wasn't sort of so scary for her I suppose, and we didn't bring the books out straight away. We sort of brought them out as it came up in conversation. And did Gideon talk about it? No, um, that was you know we were very um, we didn't hide anything from Gideon, and um, he had. We were sort of, I guess, guided by what he wanted to know. So he understood that he had a tumour in his brain that's also called a cancer and he understood that he had to have an operation to take it out and he needed the extra medication because they couldn't get it all and that caused him to become a bit weak. And when he used to ask us, when will my strength get back to normal, we said, we don't know, it might be there for a long time, it might not get better. And... That was really the extent to what Gideon asked. Um, I was anticipating that he might ask more, but he was quite a a young eight-year-old, I suppose. And we would always ask him, have you got any more questions? And, and, and he didn't, he, I don't, he didn't have anything more. I don't think he was sitting there pining away saying, why aren't they explaining this to us? We sort of spoke about this quite a bit with VSK and Palcare and we would just say, do you know? Do you understand what's happening? Have you got any more questions? That, that sort of thing. Um, when he became quite unwell and lost the ability to speak, I think that was really difficult because the communication was hard and we had to sort of point and um, use communication boards um, and at that stage, I remember ask. I said to him, do you, do you want me to explain why you have difficulty speaking? And he sort of nodded and I, I, I gave him an explanation. Um, but I think we, to this day, we still sort of wonder what, what, what Gideon was thinking about, but he, he never seemed to be wanting more than we were giving him. So... You were anticipating his needs as an eight-year-old, yeah. and he wasn't distressed by the by what was happening to yeah. him. Yeah, and he felt c- coming into the hospital for the appointments, he sort of felt safe and and understood what we always explained all the procedures and what needed to be done, and it was just his lot, and he just sort of took it on with grace, I suppose. Mm. Yeah, mm. Cherie, a baby mm. and small children. Did you actually? get a chance to try to explain this to them at that point? Were they too young to understand? Yeah, so you think that they're too young, but I think um, they're very inquisitive and they ask a lot of questions. I remember sitting out in the playground here at the hospital with our family counsellor from um, Very Special Kids and I just said to him, I don't know how to tell the the boys that... Ruby's going to die, that preparing them for it. This is when she was in ICU. And he said, um, you just, he said, be honest with them, but just keep it simple. Don't overcomplicate it with big words or anything they don't need to know. And I guess we just sort of tried to follow that rule of thumb the whole way through. we never hid anything from the boys and if they asked questions, we gave an honest answer. Um, and what obviously, questions did they ask you? Oh, they, after, after Ruby died, they asked a lot of questions, you know, like the logistics of, you know, um, is there a plane coming to pick her up to take her to heaven <laughs> or how come Good her question. body's here? Um, how does it get there? When she's in heaven, does she keep growing? Can she talk in heaven? There were lots of questions. And a lot of the time, um, well, I just said, you know, I haven't been to heaven, but I can imagine that this may happen. Or, And so we always tried to be quite transparent with them. Um, 
and I guess in particularly towards the end, um, they were used to having Ruby um, go off in an ambulance or having lots of tubes. She had a feeding tube and um, and when she was in ICU, you know, that was particularly um, challenging for them. Um, but when we were at home in palliative care, um, obviously Ruby was held by everyone a lot of the time and um, we just tried to make it, you know, she wasn't untouchable. They were they were little, they were jumping around her on the couch and poking her and cuddling her and smothering her and kisses and we just allowed that because that was really important for them. And I remember um, uh, one of our Ruby's doctors had said, uh, as she declines, you know, she, her breathing will start to slow down. And and I knew, I'd heard it before, but I actually it hadn't really sunk in. And uh, the day she passed away, she passed away at three o'clock in the afternoon. But at 9.30 that morning, um, she stopped breathing. Um, and we, Brad and I, were like, she's... She's passed away, boys, Ruby's um, stopped breathing. And then she let out this big gasp. <laughs> and and then, uh, and I, I really, I remember Harry was hysterical and he was crying and screaming and running around the room, ran to his bedroom after we told him that she died. And then we had to say, actually, she's, she's breathing again. So this happened six times in that day, in that time frame. And so we waited like half an hour after she'd passed because the times that she would stop breathing, they would be longer and longer during the day. And and um, we were like, gosh, we have to – we waited until 3.30 till we told the boys because she was so peaceful and, um, yeah, so that's something I just wasn't quite – Prepared for? Yeah, <laughs> and – um, yeah, it, it, it's it's tricky. You don't really know till you're in it how how it's going to be. But um, yeah, and we and we just tried to have the boys involved at home and, and in those final sort of stages. Mm. Were you asked any unusual questions, Beck? Um, yeah. Um, Actually, I remember it must have been the day after Gideon died. Our daughter, Nava, was sort of saying, well, what's it like in heaven? Is there one big room or are there lots of small rooms? And um, and she said, I bet you Gideon will watch TV because he loved watching TV. And she said, but who's going to help him with the remote control? Because, you know, he had weakness in both his hands at the end. And we said, oh, I'm sure everything works for him properly when he's in heaven, so he'll be able to do it himself. And then she said, what's his bed going to look like? We said, I don't know. And she said, I think it will be green and yellow because they're his favourite colours. And then she went on to proceed to tell us what her bed would look like in heaven. And it would be pink. It's like she'd been on Pinterest, you know, and just looked. And and actually, I should say that one of the things she said after we told her Gideon died, after she said, not for real life, she said, yay, then he won't be crying anymore and be noisy. And because he used to sort of, when he was in pain or upset in the last few weeks, he'd sort of cry a little bit. And that was sort of funny that, you know, that's the response. But that was just normal for her. And then she said, oh, I want to die so I can be with Gideon in heaven. Who's going to sleep in my room? I don't want to be sleeping all alone. So, yeah, it's, and we wrote all those things down because we sort of wanted to remember them all. Um, but... Um, some of the things you've said, I think it's the same for us. You know, um, Gideon died at home and we wanted him to die at home. Um, and um, in the lead up to it, as he became sort of gradually weaker, it was sort of normal for the kids. They didn't sort of see it as a disability. And when he gradually needed a wheelchair, that was sort of normal. And they would have a ride in the wheelchair when he wasn't sitting in it. And when I would give Gideon a massage with a massage oil, they wanted to do the same thing. And we've got this gorgeous photo of sort of the day before Gideon died of the two of them, you know, giving him a massage. And so they life just continued as normal around him. Um, and I remember 
that week, you know, Gideon had the apnea when, you know, stopped breathing in that sort of few hours before he died as well. It was in the middle of the night, so the kids weren't around. We were downstairs on the couch together. And um, I remember that he had lost the ability to speak for a few weeks beforehand. And that was, I think, the hardest. I just wanted to hear his voice again. He had such a gorgeous, cute little voice. And then one thing was, um, you know, so he'd stop breathing for a bit and there'd be this long pause and then when he'd take a breath again, at the end of it, he sort of sighed and it was like, huh. And it was just so nice that I got to hear his voice, sort of, just for one last time. Yeah. Things that you'll remember. Yeah. Um, did you have other backup with your family? Did you have other family support that could talk to your children about what was going on? Apart from the palliative care team, were there other members of the family that you engaged with about what you were saying, what you weren't saying, um, both you, Cherie? Uh, I think for me, probably um, my parents are of the generation that it really was probably not really spoken about. So I felt like we were leading the way for our family and I think it was the same for a lot of our family members. They're not sure what to say. To, to us, let alone our other children. Um, so I feel like everyone was kind of tippy-toeing around us a little bit. So I sort of felt a responsibility to be um, leading those conversations with family members to try and teach them that it, it's okay to talk about. And even now, it's it still carries on. I feel like it it's, I have to initiate some of those conversations. Um, I mean, we were really uh, fortunate to have um, family members. My family um, lives in the same area. So um, my um, brother and sisters and parents would often have, be looking after Harry and Charlie um, while Ruby was hospitalised. But I think too, around that time, Harry was at kindergarten and transitioning into prep. So I found um, his teachers were a great resource um, and uh, letting people know, keeping them in the loop and, you know, so they can have eyes and interaction on the kids, um, you know, outside when they're sort of in their normal life. The extended family, close family, how did they get involved? Um, yeah, we've got a close family who all live close by, so that was really helpful. So they were sort of um, all hands on board from the beginning, especially because it, w it was a lot of juggling um, initially because Isaac, our youngest, was only a baby. Um, so there was a lot of sort of shuffling back and forth between the kids um, and eventually he started childcare and my daughter was attending kinder at the same time. So... Yeah, life sort of continued as normal as possible for the kids. They were just between the grandparents and between childcare and friends. Um, and I think our parents were pretty on track with what we were thinking. And, um, yeah, I, I felt that, you know, we were able to sort of um, – they, they were very supportive. You know, we'd sort of um, – actually, when we came – because we were all so close by, when we came to the hospital appointments, um, we would often have one of them come along to sit with Gideon while we spoke to the doctor. So it became a bit of a sort of family activity. Did they ask yeah. you what language to use around Gideon? Did they talk to you about words to say? Um, they, I think it just, it flowed sort of naturally and the, the understanding was pretty clear we, we didn't need to sort of set it out in stone. I think we sort of had the same thinking, I think. So the, they took yeah. your cues yeah. Yeah. From, from how you were speaking. And obviously, uh, Sheree, for you, you know, you actually set out some kind of guidelines to help yeah, your I, I mean, they, um, they were just so supportive and just jumped in where needed. And so I think they just... Um, it's tricky because they're struggling with it themselves, um, so, um, yeah, I don't, we never really had a discussion on, on, um, what to be said and what not to be said. But, um, I think the one thing with my family, we, 
that we're all pretty close and private and sort of that's how we wanted it at the end, um, particularly when those precious days when you're at home with them. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, perhaps looking at um, how you've kept the memory alive of your child with your other children and your families. Uh, Beck, have you, oh. how have you kept that? conversation going in the family about Gideon? Um, yeah, he's just, he's so present that, that my daughter speaks about him in the present tense, which is really lovely, you know. Um, oh, he's just, it's such a hard question to answer because it really is like like Gideon is so present, you know. Um, we mention him hundreds of times every day and when I sing the kids their lullaby songs before going to bed each night, you know, we do Gideon's first and um, we have Gideon's toys and we look at videos and photos and I um, have kept diaries and have an uncanny knack to remember things about what the kids did at certain ages so I can say Gideon did this and you did this. So it's lots of sort of storytelling of um, what the kids did and... Um, so I think they really enjoy that. And then um, we celebrate the um, milestones. Um, we go to, we've attended one of the bereavement groups at the hospital here and one of the families who'd been bereaved a lot longer than us um, explained how when their child has the birthday, they um, choose a fun activity to do that all the other children like. So we've started doing that and that's staying in a hotel in the city and they love it and we've now done it twice and they swim in the pool and there's all these um, milestones and rituals that we do. So attached to birthdays, attached to... And also to the anniversary of his death and um, and, and, and the community is sort of very supportive and Narvas attends the same school as Gideon. So he's very present, Yeah. Sure. Yeah, we're quite similar, actually. Um, I guess initially, when the boys were young, and it and Ruby first passed away, I um, I'd made up a, a slideshow that we'd put together for a funeral. I just kept showing it over and over and over to them. I felt like I I didn't want them to forget, and. I think I finally realised that they were like, Mum, that's like, we, we don't need to watch that. <laughs> yeah. um, and I was a bit the same taking them to the cemetery. Ruby was buried at the local cemetery and I would take them there a lot. And then I realised that maybe that wasn't their choice. It was, it was me. Um, and I guess we just, over time, we speak about Ruby like she still is part of our family and it's, you know... It's just sort of come natural that they know that she's still a part of, she's still their sister. And, you know, I always say I have three children. Um, and we are, we're similar to you, Beck. We um, have like a birthday cake on Ruby's birthday. At dinner times at the table each night, we light a candle. So it's kind of like that she's present. Um, and then we've done a couple of um, extra things um, to sort of continue Ruby's legacy and we do the run for the kids every year and put a team in Ruby's name and it's sort of gathered momentum over the years. So it's a really lovely um, thing that we do each year. So, yeah. And did some of that um, planning for memorialising or remembering come from discussions with the PAL team? Did it come from uh, discussions with your family or is it? did it just come from your hearts in the end that, you know, it just kind of you had to think, you wanted to think of some way to, to keep it alive and keep your other children engaged in it? Um, I think most of it just sort of evolved naturally. Um, as Gideon was dying, I... I couldn't really think much past about what happens after his death, um, but once he did die, then all that—that's what consumed a lot of my thinking of how are we going to remember him. And we became involved in um, the Robert Connor Dawes Foundation, which is a charity for raising 
money for paediatric brain cancer. And so we take part in um, the yearly fund runs and we've just established with some of the money we've raised a PhD scholarship in Gideon's name. So uh, those are the types of things that's nice for the outside world, I suppose, to also commemorate. Um, And some of it is from friends as well. I you know, you think as an adult you don't really gain so many new friends, but then someone match made me with another mother whose child died at a similar time from also a brain tumour who lives locally and she she suggested about making a memory book. And so we asked the community and school to write memories and it's all sitting there. It's all I haven't yet finished mm-hmm. it. So I think those ideas just sort of come. You're always sort of thinking, what else can I do? Sure. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We're, ours kind of just evolved, I think. Um, yeah, they're just, they just seem natural ways to, to um, help remember Ruby. And I think when you have other children too, it's really important. You're always thinking about, uh, you know, what could we be doing and how is it going to help? And so, yeah, ours kind of... Um, it just kind of happened, yeah. Um, Beck, you have a newborn, mm-hmm. so the process of explaining the life of Gideon will—is it just going to emerge slowly, or have you got a plan? Or you know, this child is a couple of weeks old, so ha- have yeah. you thought about that? Um, well, I think one of the important things for us um, when he was born was to sort of you know make sure that he knows that he has three older siblings and when the kids came to see him in hospital they brought the Gideon had um a cookie monster and a ducky toy that he used to love and take with him to hospital appointments and chat stuff about and so when the kids came you know we brought cookie and ducky and introduced um the baby Raphael to you know Gideon's friends so I think he's just immersed in the family life you know like his brother and sister are but I guess I'm sure that they'll sort of feel it's their role not that I'll force it upon them but to educate them about this is what happened (laughs) and um, his sister who's now six I'm sure sort of takes that very seriously so I want him to feel like he is Gideon's brother and um, when we named him we made sure that there was um, a connection between their names because I thought that would be important for him as he gets older to feel that connection. Okay, perhaps we should try to sum up by thinking of what advice for other parents you would have about including and supporting your other children because this is a fear for many, many parents that you've experienced it. Um, Cherie, any advice? Uh, I guess um, every situation is different and... um, I think probably the biggest things um, for us in our family is the inclusion of siblings. I think that's been really important for Harry and Charlie Um, and being honest with them and keeping it simple and and real. Um, And I guess the other thing too is... Um, showing to them that it's okay to be upset and let your emotions out. Um, I, um, when Ruby passed away, she had this um, little, uh, a beautiful woolen blanket and um, um, it needed to be washed after she'd passed and I threw it in the washing machine and um, it obviously shrunk to about the size of a hanky and I was absolutely distraught. And I remember sitting at the dining table just crying, crying, crying and I didn't know, I thought it was the end of the world. Anyway, Harry and Char- this all happened in front of Harry and Charlie and they um, they took off to Ruby's bedroom. They came back with all these toys, teddies and they came back with some other beautiful blankets of hers and they said, Mum, it's okay, we've got this. And, and that empathy that they showed to me, and they were three and four at the time, was absolutely remarkable. And I think um, if you can um, involve your children and be transparent and, you know, I've never gone off into a bedroom or somewhere else to cry 
away from them and I feel like it shows to them that they can do that too. It's acceptable. So, yeah, and it just, yeah, you wonder how such small children can be so powerful and amazing, but they they really are. So, yeah, hope that kind of answers your question. It does. (laughs) Big? Yeah, I I agree. I think you said it really well. Um, I, I think that... I suppose we sort of act as a role model and they sort of see how we do it and then that just becomes normal. So it's normal for the kids to talk about their brother that's no longer alive and that's not taboo. And so that means that they talk about it with their friends and school and it sort of sets the scene for other people to feel that it's okay to talk about them um, because, you know, people are scared of death and so I think it makes them proud and I feel like, um, you know, having a brother that died is part of their identity and, yeah, maybe, you know, might make them or has made them more resilient, you know. I don't know. Yeah. Beck, anything else you want to tell us about engaging with siblings in this crucial time? Yeah, I think um, the, the kids... And especially um, our daughter, who's six, really feels the need to share things with Gideon when great things happen to her. You know, she still wants to tell him. So, um, for example, um, when someone's having a tantrum, right, whether it's Isaac, our little one, or a cousin, you know, she'll say, Gideon, Isaac's having a tanty. Or, you know, when we told her that I was pregnant, the first thing she said was, I've got to tell Gideon, you know, so she wants to share these things with him. And I think we must have started by sort of saying something to him. You know, we don't say it out in the open when we're at a shopping centre in front of people, but in our house, you know, we'll, if something's funny, we might say, Gideon, this happened. And so they do it too. And it's a nice sort of way of making them feel connected to him. I think your daughter's got the role for life here. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. And even um, when she was telling um, people at school that we were having another baby and she said, so there's going to be six people in our family. And one of the friends said, well, actually... It's only going to be five, and the teacher t- was later telling me this story, and she said, "She said, she said, no. Even though Gideon died, he's still in our family, so there's going to be six. So, you know, that's just normal to her. Yeah. Well, as they're getting older, have the questions changed? Have they stopped asking about heaven? Have they asked other questions as they're getting older? Yeah, I think um, our youngest son, he is getting more upset now because his memory of Ruby is diminishing. So he was three and a half and he gets really upset because he says, I can't remember, I'm losing those memories. And and I guess as he gets older, um, that will increase. But at the moment, that's really upsetting him, whereas the other one's a bit of a closed book. He's a real um, thinker but won't let it out. And I guess for us too, Ruby's disorder was a genetic disorder. So um, we will at some point, we haven't yet, but we will go down the track of getting them tested to see if they carry the same gene that could then pass on to their children. So I'm sure in the future, as they get older, that revisiting that potentially could be another challenge that will have to face. Um, but yeah, I think they their questions do change a little and their thoughts as they um, mature. Um, but I know, um, yeah, I'm really mindful of Charlie because he was so young. It, it's almost like it frightens him. Um, um, but it, he it is similar to your children. He has a, a, a real connection and and says that, you know, that Ruby's there and he speaks to her and um but yeah, I'm not sure if that'll that'll change as he gets older, but yeah. Have the questions changed? Has your daughter um even though she's still in that engagement thing, are, are there questions 
changing? Um, not not in a huge way yet. I keep on thinking, is it going to happen soon? Um, so I'm thinking about how we approach that, um, but not not significantly, I don't think, not yet. I was going to say the only other thing I was thinking that um, I know um, Brad and I tried to put a lot of thought around was um, when Ruby passed away at home was the whole process of taking her body um, to we went to Tobin Brothers and the challenges around that. I had this thought in my mind that like a hearse was going to come and take her away and how were we going to explain that to the boys? And um, we actually, I don't know how it evolved, we just, Brad and I chatted and we just thought we will take the boys and Ruby. I held Ruby in the back seat in between the boys' car seats and we took them there with her because the the questions around that were they were firing all sorts of questions like you know she's died but then we're not going to have her funeral until next week and it was really difficult to explain that to them so we actually um we took them with us in the car to Tobin Brothers and when we got to Tobin Brothers we um sh- explained to the boys that they were going to look after her body until her um, funeral and we, you know, we put her in a bassinet there and and showed the boys and um, so, yeah, I think that kind of helped them a little bit. Like it's a hard concept for small children to understand that she's died but she's not going straight to heaven and I felt like... There were a lot of questions surrounding that during that time and um, I just thought and wondered if other parents were in the same position on, you know, how do you cope with that and what what sort of things do you do during that time because there's a million things going through your head at that time and, and the logistics and, and so forth. So um, that's just what we did. I'm not sure what other people do but... I- a brave plan because, mm. you know, as you say, was a hearse going to come? Mm. You know, a mm. difficult to see, but obviously it worked for the children yeah. to to see her being handed over gently mm. and mm. Um, that she wasn't just going to disappear. Mm. Yeah. Okay, thank you for your brave and honest discussion with us today. You've been listening to the Royal Children's Hospital podcast series Life, Love and Loss, Caring for a Child Who is Dying. The Royal Children's Hospital Victorian Paediatric Palliative Care Program and all its health professionals would like to thank those parents who've generously taken part in this series. You can search all the episodes online at rch.org.au forward slash podcasts. I'm Lena Keneva. Thanks for listening.